The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. A technical directive promising closer scrutiny of planks and skids and a vertical oscillation limit triggered massive controversy during the Canadian Grand Prix weekend. Today, we'll cut through the heated political arguments and delve into the technical detail of these proposals and how exactly Mercedes has caused itself such big bouncing problems in 2022. I'm Ed Straw and welcome to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. As always, I'm joined by Gary Anderson, who has decades of experience in Formula One as a mechanic, engineer and technical director, as well as all of his work in the media, offering unparalleled insight into the hidden technical depths of F1. How's life, Gary? Life's good, yeah. Sun's shining again, so I can't really complain about that. You know, it's... uh... It's nice. My next door neighbour's having his swimming pool renovated, I think. So um, I've had to move into another little cubby hole to, to try to get a bit of silence. But uh, other than that, uh, life's pretty good, yeah. Yeah, can't complain. It's a good time of the year for a swimming pool, so I can't blame them for that. Well, let's, as always, start off with a topic that's caught your eye this week. So what would you like to talk about before we move on to our main topic? Well, obviously, as we saw in, in Montreal, um, conditions can change quite dramatically and very quickly. Um, so it's the, the wet dry situation um, it's not quite so much about setup um, more a little bit about the tires and the difference they create to the sort of aero structure going around the car but starting off with the setup a little bit you know in the old days you used to do lots of work you'd soften the roll bars you'd soften the springs you'd raise the ride height you'd put more downforce on but in general these days you know a you have good enough weather forecast to predict that if it was going to rain all weekend, then you might do something dramatically. But as we saw in Montreal, it was dry on the Friday, it was wet on the Saturday, it was dry on the Sunday. So really the, the end result, because of the park Fermi rules, which are that you can't adjust the car after you leave the pit lane for qualifying, means that you have to really have a wrist set up on the car for qualifying. You can't change much. You can alter the front wing angle a little bit. You can alter some of the electronic setups um, on the car. Um, and obviously you change the tires. If the conditions change dramatically, then you can you can alter the cooling of the brakes and the cooling of the engine. But uh, in general, the setup of the car needs to be done for race day. And as we saw in Montreal, that was a dry a dry episode. So um, you would for the qualifying on the on the Friday, you just uh, just drop the front wing a little bit. You might have put on a, a little gurney flap on the rear wing instead. You always want to move the the downforce rearwards that little bit um, just to make sure the car's not so nervous to drive. You can sort of live with a little bit of understeer. But in general, there isn't a big change now from from dry setup to, to wet setup. Um, but as I say, because of the conditions in Canada, it meant that you needed needed to be good in the wet on a, on a Friday, on a Saturday, and uh, good in the dry on a, on a Sunday. But it's more the, the tyres. Obviously, you put the treaded tyres on. Now, um, these tyres have changed. They're 18-inch rims. They're a slightly bigger diameter than they used to be overall. Um the wet tire can be up to 10 millimeters bigger diameter than the, the slick tire. And that was always done to raise the, um, to raise the ride height a little bit for the, for the wet. There's not much difference in the, in the intermediate as far as I know, just a, maybe, you know, maybe a millimeter or two. Um, so it's, it's, uh, the, the intermediates don't raise the car very much. The wets should raise the car a little bit. So I guess out of any, any standing water. And these tires pump water. So they're, they're basically the tread's designed to pump the water. Um, 
Not as much as the old tyres used to. We always heard this thing about, you know, 65 or maybe even 80 litres per second of water. Um, but these seem to be less now, uh, a little bit less, mainly because I suppose the tyres changed in its characteristics because of the 18-inch rim, but they seem to pump that little bit less water. They're also a little bit wider. So it's the, it's the sort of aspect ratio of the tread to the, to the, uh, to the ground um, and how much water can flow through those grooves because there is no team in the pit lane that actually tests their car in the wind tunnel um, with wet tyres on it because at the end of the day, you know, the majority is going to be dry tyres. Now, we talk about this tyre squirt. The tyre squirt is, is how the tyres the rotating on the track and that air that's, you know, in front of the tyre as such, down on the ground, has to go somewhere. So it either goes around the inside of the tyre or it goes around the outside of the tyre, whenever you've got a slick tyre on. And at the front of the car, that works really in conjunction with the um, with the front wing end plate. Uh, the front wing end plate can influence how much goes around the inside of the tyre and how much goes around the outside of the tyre. And the rear of the car, it does the same thing. The, the Obviously, low pressure underneath the car is trying to pull more airflow underneath the car, so on the inside of the rear tyre. Uh, and the floor doesn't really want that to happen. So you're trying to do things with the sides of the floor that will um, eliminate some of that flow going inside of the tyre. Um, so on slicks, all of that volume has to go around the tyre. Now you put the wets on, that's a completely different deal. There's a, a large tread portion that obviously the flow can go through there. If you look at the the, t the water wake from behind the front tyres and, and behind the rear tyres, the wake behind the front tyres actually um, comes through the tread and it heads sort of into the underfloor just in front of the rear tyre into that area. That's where the lowest pressure area is on the floor. It's that back half of the floor, I suppose you might call it, the sides of the floor. That's where the lowest pressure is underneath the car. So that, that weight coming off the, uh, the back of the front tyre tread. And I'm, when I'm talking tread here, I'm talking about the flow on the ground, not the flow up high. Um, so that, that flow coming out of the back of the tyre heads into that area of the diffuser, really through the sides of the floor. At the back of the car, you can see the, the, the wake from the back of the tyre heads in at about maybe 45 degrees, 30 degrees to, to straight ahead, sort of to meet up in the middle because obviously the low pressure behind the car is pulling it inwards. Um, so it gives you an indication as to where that mass flow of water is going, which is an indication as to the mass flow of air. But um, but it's different, as I say, because of, of the uh, slick tyres compared to the wet tyres. But it's something that it does probably give... I, if I was doing Formula 1 now, I'd be having a very good look at a lot of pictures. We, we talked with the, with the uh, Mercedes early on in the season testing about the vortices that it was setting up compared to the McLaren, the vortices that it was setting up. And, you know, McLaren's dropped off quite a lot since the beginning of the season, to be honest. I expected a lot more from them. Um, it hasn't happened. But I think that Mercedes need to look at that detail. Need to look at that detail on the Red Bull and on the Ferrari because they're the, they're the three competitive teams really. There there are others nipping in there now and again, like like uh, Alpine. But they're the three competitive teams that you can sort of look at and say they're doing a pretty good job. Um, so I think that in the wet, there's a lot more to it than just what we call a wet setup. It's about how your car reacts to putting wet tires on, which has, which does change the aero aero flow structure around the car quite dramatically and there may be things to learn there because they the mercedes was probably yeah, it was a pretty decent car on the, on the saturday in the wet to be honest um obviously the race is a different deal you, you don't know we, we talk a lot about having the fastest car in the race but there is 
very few drivers out there pushing um, flat out, especially Max Verstappen, for example. He's, he's looking at a championship and he's in the lead of the race. Why, why should he put things on the limit? You know, Why should he try to find that last second or second and a half that is potentially there? He doesn't need to right now. If he's got 25 points in front of him, he needs to protect it. So the race is always difficult to compare who's got a fast car and who hasn't. Um, but I think that on the on the Saturday, the Mercedes was probably a better car than it was any time in the dry. When it comes to these wet characteristics, is it mostly just luck, given they can't test it, or do designers have this in mind how it'll behave in the wet, or is that just a an emergent quality of the other work they do? Well, uh, you know, the difference is the same for everybody. When somebody goes from when every team has to go from dry tires to wet tires because it's wet then the change will be the same for everybody. But on some cars, it will work a little bit better than others. And we've, we've seen that since Doomsday, that, you know, a car will be good in the wet and uh, and it's not so good in the dry or vice versa. Um, and what I'm saying really is it isn't all just down to the fact of a global um, a global statement that, oh, this car's really good in the wet or this driver's really good in the wet. It's down to more than that. There is something in there that makes the car aerodynamically that changes the car um will anybody ever test on on uh, on wet weather tires i would doubt it i mean the the tire and the contact with the, with the with the belt in the wind tunnel the slick tire and the contact with the belt in the wind tunnel is critical we used to check it with just a sheet of a4 sheet of paper on the inside and the outside just to make sure the camber was 100 percent correct because just a little bit a half a millimeter gap at one side of it just change the balance of the car completely. So you've got to be really careful with it. But um, I'm sure that, that you know they've taken this into account. Uh, you could so one thing you could compare in CFD with the tires with with flow going through them, through the treads um, or through the cutouts in the tread. Um, but it's 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 a very difficult thing to do unless you really do set yourself up to say, okay, I'm going to make myself a, a set of wet weather tires and, and test them in the wind tunnel. So I think there is a bit of luck in there. There's a bit of gut feel. There's a bit of reaction to what's going on. But what I'm really sort of saying is there's a the vortices down the sides of the car and how um, Ferrari and Red Bull and Mercedes try to operate the side of the side of the floor of the car is quite different. And there could be some learning in there if you really look deeply at what happened in the wet compared to what happened in the dry. Yeah, well, there's always something to learn these, and we know that teams study the uh, the, the photos. And as you mentioned, the McLaren in, in testing, I seem to remember uh, James Key mentioned that the McLaren head of aero uh, tipped their hat to you for spotting the uh, the behaviour of the vortices there. So uh, it does show that there's there's ways to learn that aren't just based on orthodox data gathering, doesn't it? Oh yeah, it's true. Every day in every way, you should learn something new. And you know, I said that before, and we'll get onto that in the next the next um, the next subject. I think. You know, the, the the bouncing of the Mercedes in Monaco should have really highlighted something to them quite dramatically and quite quickly. But, um, you know, you can't just shut your eyes to what's happening around you. You have to keep your eyes open all the time. And you learn something from everything. And, uh, and that's very important. Let's dive into our big topic, which is the problems in F1 this season with porpoising, bouncing ride problems, particularly for Mercedes. But should we start off with a technical directive that was issued ahead of the Canadian Grand Prix weekend, Gary? You've received plenty of these in your time, but can you just 
explain exactly what is a technical directive and how that whole process works first. I think it's quite a, a mysterious thing to a lot of people. Um, yeah, technical directive. I mean, you know, the regulations are obviously written and everybody does the best job they can. And then when they're released and another, you know, thousand engineers start poking holes in them, there will be things that need a little bit better explanation. And the technical directive was always about that. If uh, in the old days, you used to, uh, you know, ask Charlie what, what he thought and he'd give you an the FIA's opinion. His opinion was the FIA's opinion. So you got that. Um, nowadays, it got a bit more formal. Uh, you have to sort of write to the FIA. Um, if they consider that the regulation itself is a bit vague, then they will send out the technical directive to all the teams to explain to them um, really how they view it. So it, it, the technical directive is the FIA's opinion on a regulation, but the regulation is what the car consists of. So, for example, if we go back to DAS, which Mercedes created, you know, they they dealt directly with the FIA relative to would there this new steering system that they had contravene the regulations. As it was seen as a, an independent, it wasn't a regulation um, clarification they were after, it was a, a regulation compliance they were after. At the end of the day, you know, the, the FIA will give you the opinion that does it comply with the regulations? They will say yes or no. And if, the, if they thought the regulation was a bit vague, then, as I say, they would, ask, they would send that information out to all the teams. So a, te a, technical direct a technical directive doesn't really carry any weight. Um, it does give you the FIA's opinion. And if you want to continue in the direction you're going in with it, then you may get, um, you may get somebody protesting you. Uh, the FIA might question what you've done. If they have, have said once, you know, we don't think this is right, and look at it a bit deeper. So it's, a, it's a, an indication of how the FIA's stance, where the FIA's stance is, but it is, has nothing to do with regulations in itself. The regulations are written in the regulation book, and you will get the, a technical directive, as I say, that as a rule clarification to allow you to understand that a little bit better if they think the rule is a bit, you know, a bit strangely written, which, you know, there's so many rules nowadays. I'm, I'm surprised it's not a huge amount more uh, technical directives relative to them because there's it's just massive the rule book now yeah when it came to that technical directive there was the question about the second stay that mercedes for example ran that was in the technical directive it was felt that it should be okay to use for the race but mercedes didn't use it because of concerns about whether it could be protested and actually it didn't quite work as as helped but christian horner said that that stay rule was overtly biased towards Mercedes but not so objected to it so that there's also this fine line isn't there that sometimes things can be introduced in technical directives but they're not actually in the rules and they the argument is they have to go through the the normal governance process to be properly made rules so it's quite complicated isn't it they're, they're both rules and not rules aren't they yeah they are both rules and not rules but you know at the end of the day that the the rule book as long as you are confident in what you've done um, the rule book is what you would fight in a, in a court of law. Um, a directive is exactly what it says. It's, it's giving you a direction as to what you, you, you should do. Now, the state, the body stays is a typical example. You know, um, if I was having problems in that area, and if the FA had turned around and said, oh, you can, you can put a second stay on there, um, 
as a team, I would be pretty disappointed if I didn't jump in there and get it done by tomorrow, even if it meant visiting the hardware shop down the road and finding a bicycle spoke or whatever it be. Um, or in that case, probably the loads in it, a motorcycle spoke. Uh, you know, it, it's all, anything's possible. And that's what Formula One should be about. So I, I don't buy into this thing that, you know, Mercedes must have had earlier um, uh, indication that this was going to come um, and that they prepared themselves and brought this piece to put on there. You know, they're in Montreal. Montreal is a, it's a big city. Uh, go to a motorcycle shop, as I say, and, and buy yourself a motorcycle spoke and come back and scratch your head a little bit and you'll have it on there by tomorrow morning without any problem. So I don't buy into the fact that they, they knew about it prior to everybody else. Um, and obviously it's something that suits their situation with a big flat floor area. I'm um, I'm surprised that Mercedes, if it, if it did do anything for them, I'm surprised that it, it they didn't just keep on running it and, and bite the bullet because they can prove, you know, how they came about having it. It might have been the paper trail, you know. Maybe they did have an earlier indication and maybe they did bring a piece with them. So if they'd had the paper trail of going to Joe Bloggs motorcycles down the road, buying these bits and pieces and coming back on the on the uh, Thursday afternoon, then, you know, they're all right. But if they didn't have that paper trail, then perhaps they did have some indication. But it's a, it's a bit of a very small, weak link thing to actually bring up to, to be such a big deal. Um, the, 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 the big deal is in, the, in more in the depth of, of what that technical directive was all about. Well, on that subject, let's delve into that. The FIA did put out a statement about the technical directive. They haven't issued the technical directive. They're, they're never made public, although we do often get our hands on them. But there were two things. Point one was closer scrutiny of the planks and skids, both in terms of their design and the observed wear. And point two was the definition of a metric based on the car's vertical acceleration that will give a quantitative limit for acceptable level of vertical oscillations. The exact mathematical formula for this metric is still being analysed by the FIA and the Formula One teams have been invited to contribute to this process. Now, that technical directive did get parked in the end. The original hope was for that metric to be in play come Saturday, which always sounded a little bit optimistic. But what did you make of this whole saga and the objectives in the technical directive? Well, it's it's a way of going about it. I mean, I think you could start very simply um, the plank situation. The plank has got itself, you know, it's a circle of events. It was, it was generated, it was created in, after 90, 1994 when Ernst Senna was killed. And it was believed that, you know, at that point in time, the cars were hitting the ground so hard with a solid base and there was no wear situation that basically his car with lower tyre pressures bottomed out and, and he crashed. There's lots of speculation as to why it happened, but that was the sort of general thing at that point in time. So then along came the plank. The plank at that point in time was a piece of wood, um, 30 centimetres wide, and it went from the back of the front tyre to the, the front of the rear tyre from memory. Um, that was it uh, and then some people got done for a little bit of wear here and there and because you're allowed to wear more, no more than a millimeter off it um, and it you know it had to wear it had to weigh uh, at least 90 percent of the original weight so basically you had a comparison weight and you had a, a, a comparison wear so you couldn't just wear one area of it away if it went more than one millimeter wear you would get done for it if you wore the whole thing away you'd get done for it but then because of that, there was skids placed in certain critical areas, I suppose you might call it. And that's just escalated. You know, if you look at the cars now with the sparks coming out from below them, there is no way that that would last if it was just a wooden plank. So, um, I mean, it's a very expensive piece of wood. It's not just a, you know, B&Q 
and other stores are available. It's not just a and q piece of plywood, but um, you, you you know everything's around the circle. So at the moment, it does not it does not serve purpose as the regulation is because you can put enough skids on it within the regulations to mean it doesn't wear out. Um, so you've got a circle of events. The car's still hitting the ground, um, and also the <coughs> the front floor, the front bib mounting with the spring arrangement in it. Great idea, saves the chassis, but it's not it's not legal within the regulations. It's uh, it's something that's there to allow the t- car to pass the test, and then it breaks the preload and it can move. It's a good way to achieve what it was set out to do, which is to. Um, withstand the, the vertical load, the upward load that the, that the FIA test requires, but then not to be a solid so that it damages the chassis if you go over one of these sort of sausage curves. So that's all great stuff, except for obviously the way we see it now, the load's too, the load is not great enough. The load needs to be a lot higher because the cars are on the, on the front skid all the time. I don't know if there's anything in the back of the car that does the same sort of thing because that would all be inside the bell housing. And uh, it could be because the, you know, the the Red Bull, for example, moved their suspension from that area of the bell housing up to the top of the gearbox. Would that be to make room for something there that would work the same as the front of the car, so that, that skid can dis, the, you know deflect the floor a little bit? I don't know. I'm a, I'm a, I'm just sort of thinking thinking uh, laterally here. So the the skid's a big thing. If they brought in smaller skids. More control over that that wear on the plank, um, change the loads on the floor deflection. You could have something there. So if the car's hitting the ground hard, it will um, it'll wear the plank, and you know you get done for it. But I don't like protests after a race, so that needs to be done in some way where plank wear equals points loss or something like that. So it's 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 basically invisible as far as the race that's just happened is concerned. But overall, it can be a problem. Um, but that doesn't stop teams from running suspension, um, you know, more or less solid, especially on the back of the car, um, because you've got two spring systems, one on each side of the car that controls the normal cornering rate, wheel rate of the car, and then you've got a third spring. That third spring, we call it a spring, but actually it could be a solid piece of, you know, whatever that the car just comes down onto. And from that point in time, then all you have is the tyres giving you suspension. So it's um, it's one of those things that, that that's what gives you the accelerations in the car. So going, you know, the, the, the two are divided. You've got the, the plank wear potentially, and then you've got something that means you can, you'd have to run the suspension very solid to get the best out of it. And the car would be bouncing all the time, creating high G impacts for the driver. Now, I don't think it's the end of the world to create a metric that would be a practical place to start. You'll never start where it'll end up at but you have to start somewhere and then see how you uh, alter it on the way. So bringing it in for the Saturday in, the, in in Canada was a bit ambitious. I think, you know, you got to say, right, okay, we're going to get this data. We're going to look at it for up to the summer break even and say by the, by the time the cars come back from the summer break, uh, this is going to be the peak G levels that we'll see it in the car. And you, over these next few races, including... Um, including the, uh, the Azerbaijan race, which was one of the worst, you look at getting yourself a, a, you know, a metric that functions. And it is just G against time. You know, that's all you're interested in. So over a lap, um, anything above XG, any time above XG would be counted. And that's all in the car now. That, all, that can all be done you know, 100% with the, with the 
the um, the accelerometers that are in the car, um, and it's all data logged. So it's just simply anything above xg is counted. You add up that whole time, and you say, okay, you know, you're allowed you're allowed five seconds, ten seconds, whatever it be, above five g. Um, and you know that'll that'll allow you to hit curbs, hit sausage curbs, do all the high impacts that you normally would do in the car. But it'll take out this this porpoising, or whatever you like to call it, bouncing noise that we see the driver's helmet in the car going down the end of a straight. You just limit that time, so you just get yourself a number on on g levels, and then you just keep reducing that number, uh, that length of time you can have it. I think it's relatively simple. I think it's relatively good. But um, obviously the teams don't like it. it. It doesn't really influence one team more than another. Obviously, if you've got it in your car, then, then it will influence you more than some other team as far as what you've got to do to sort it out. But, you, you, you know, it's something that you have to do. And, of course, it becomes doubly complicated because there's the whole politics side. And also we are dealing with something that is significant for the drivers because there's legitimate concerns about damage to the spine, that kind of thing, even the amount of shaking the brain's going through. So there are real concerns there, which is what makes this a little bit higher stakes perhaps than the normal push and pull when it comes to teams trying to get changes that work for them or work against their competitors. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not that it's a, a, a short-term safety issue. You know, it's a long-term safety issue. It's a bit like footballers heading the ball and rugby players' impacts and whatever. You know, it's not happening today just, you know, if you go and bang your head, yes, then you can see you get concussion. But this is something that's going on in the background, and it'll build up over time. You know, it was just, um, the, the the first race we had at, I was at IndyCar in, 20, in 20, uh, 2001 at Texas Motor Speedway. And uh, the cars went out there, and, you know, lap times were like average speed of 240 plus miles an hour. And everybody was quite happy on day one, round round practice, you know, all quite good. No dramas. And then come day, day two, and the cars all went out. And suddenly they were coming back into the pits after two or three laps, which is very uncommon in IndyCar. And you went to sort of have a look, and nearly every driver thought they had food poisoning or something because they felt a bit sick. Um, and they just felt a bit, you know, a bit mixed up. And, and it was just one of those sort of strange things. And then it sort of was realised that actually the, the G levels they were suffering, suffering on the Friday or on the first practice was high enough for the time spent at that G meant they had, you know, Moved the brain a bit like that, type thing. So they, they were, they took that run on the on the next day, the next practice session to sort of re-alert it, and the body didn't want it anymore. So it sort of gave up. It just was saying, you know, I've had enough, and that, and that's the same thing that can happen in Formula One. You know, you can start to feel nausea just because of the the excess G levels. It's like in an airplane with it bouncing along merrily and in turbulence, that sort of thing, or people that get sick in a road car. Everybody's different. Everybody's individual. Now, Formula One drivers are, you know, quite fit, trim, whatever you like to call it. So they shouldn't suffer the the same consequences as you or I might suffer, Ed. But at the end of the day, they will suffer at some point in time. So to have this control over it, this maximum G level, is not the wrong thing in general. Even if even if it was set right now far too high that nobody exceeds it, just to get something in there that then you can pull back through time to to police it a little bit more. So I think it's the right thing to be doing. A bit ambitious to get it done for, for the um, the Saturday in, in uh, Montreal, but to get it done for the sort of summer break would be practical and, and sensible for everybody. 
as it stands, they're still trying to get something in place for Silverstone the next race. But yeah, I think your timescale might be a little bit more realistic because it's important to get it right, of course. You're listening to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. Well, let's, on the same topic, talk a bit more in detail about Mercedes, Gary. It's clear they're struggling more than the rest of the ride of the car. They said in Spain they'd solved the porpoising problem and now it's just about the ride and the and the bouncing. But how has Mercedes got this so profoundly wrong? Yeah, well, it's the same old thing, you know. Every compass in the world has got a north, south, east and west pointer on it. But it's still up to you to decide which way to go. Um, so the individual still decides the direction it's going to try and take. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying Mercedes got it wrong. They followed their path uh, in, the, in the research of this car. The direction they took was what they believed was the right direction um, to get to the seaside, but it ended up not being like that. So you've got a, a difficult situation. They've got, a, they've got a very small side pod area called the zero side pod, a huge amount of floor revealed on the top of the car. So, in effect, with what they've got, they've got a, a higher pressure area on top of the floor. I'm not saying they've got higher pressure, but they've got a bigger area, seeing that higher pressure on the top of the floor. Um, on the bottom of the floor, they've got the same as everybody else with X negative pressure. They haven't got a bigger floor, they've got the same floor. But because they've got higher pressure on top of it, and the same low pressure as everybody else underneath it, the pressure differential across there is greater Um and when you've got that, it gives you more downforce. The problem is you've got to stop the high pressure from wanting to get into the low pressure area. And the more differential you have across there, the more it wants to get there. So, you know, they have got to, to get the best out of their car. They have got to seal the sides of their car to the floor, to the ground, better than anybody else because the pressure differential is greater. Um, and... That's where they've sort of fall file. The porpoise at the beginning of the year was because of that. Basically, the you know the the underfloor would get close to the ground. Somewhere in the underfloor and the diffuser area would stall. It would release the downforce, and the car would bounce back up again, or the car would come back up again, generate the downforce, and be pulled back down again. So the car would go along um, porpoising, as we call it. Um, and then they went to Paul Ricard, I think it was, before Monaco, uh, to do a test. And as, if you ever wanted to go to a track that would be the worst place to test out anything, it would be Paul Ricard, um, because it's like a billiard ball. So anything you do there um, will be zero representative to any other track. And I'm sure there they found that it was a filming day, so they only let it do 100 Ks. So you can't do that much. It's on different tires. But I'm sure they experimented, and what they end up with there to reduce the porpoising um, would be a very stiff suspension setup, which means that the car will just be running sort of trapped at one at one sort of ride height. Um, for sure, fix the porpoising, uh, but the, the ride would be the ride would be terrible. And then they went to Barcelona, um, and they felt they were in good form there. Yes, they were. They were. 
they weren't slow by any means. Um, but they had the car sort of tied into a little window that basically was just for that one track. And then you go to Monaco and the car's bouncing all over the place, as of a jam, bouncing all over the place. It's not porpoising so much, but it's bouncing. And that bouncing generates a bit of porpoising as well. So you'd say that they changed the problem between 75% porpoise and 25% bouncing prior to Barcelona to 75% bouncing and 25% porpoising. So they changed the priorities around, and that's what they're still recovering from. So they need, you can't get everything for nothing. You know, if you've got a car that's got more downforce, you're going to have to do something to try to make that downforce work for you other than just dropping the car into the ground. And um, James Allison said something a bit strange over the, the Montreal weekend, which was his first appearance this year. He he said that they were they could raise the rear ride height, but it didn't it didn't alter the car's characteristic bouncing. And it, and he hinted that they, made, they just didn't have a suspension movement in the back of the car to actually raise the ride height and make the car softer. If you make the car softer, the car's going to move more, and then all that suspend all that mechanisms in the back of the car that gives you the suspension needs to move further and it could be that they've got themselves caught out with the, you know having too little movement in the rear of the car to uh to allow them the movement they need to run the car soft enough you know last year's car was completely different they ran it fairly low fairly flat profile um they didn't use a lot of a lot of suspension movement because the the uh the car didn't generate as much underfloor downforce so you could easily have got yourself in a little corner by not allowing enough suspension movement. And even now, if you try to raise the car to get out of the porpoising, you still get the bouncing because the car is too stiff to 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 make sure you don't um, over overload the, the suspension in, in movement or overwork the suspension in movement. So they maybe got a bigger, maybe got recognition of their problem at the moment. But, you know, it's the same for every team. You have to make your decisions. Um, very early on as to what you're going to do, and they've obviously made some of the some some of them wrong. Is it something that Mercedes is just completely stuck with now? Because, like you say, there's a problem with the mechanical platform. Obviously, the mechanical platform works in a certain way because that's the way the aero works. Maybe there's limitation in rear suspension travel. So basically, to fix this properly, they do have to do a completely new car, which doesn't really work with the cost cap, with the time constraints. So are they now just make the best of it, learn what you can with this car, and make the most of it on the few occasions when the track might allow it to run okay? Silverstone, for example, could work reasonably well for it. And they just have to accept that, that that's it for the season. Just do what you can and reset next year with a, with a completely different aero philosophy and and mechanical platform is this one of those times where that that word philosophy really is key to mercedes problem yeah it is key i mean going back to words um total wolf has said on many occasions this year it is science it's physics it's not mystics and yet every race meeting this year we've we've heard them saying we're, we're experimenting well if it's science and physics then experiments uh, at the track you you shouldn't have to sort of uh, do too many of them they they probably got a car that as we saw in Barcelona was better. They probably got a car that you know maybe at Silverstone it can perform better. But I don't think it should stop them trying to get themselves to the top of the pile. The relative the relative problem that the, that the zero side pod creates is the problem that they went the avenue they went down because they found that with it they felt they could generate more downforce. 
it's very difficult to know how you come up with that uh, that assumption because there's no way that that um, Mercedes tested other solutions, i.e., a Red Bull solution in the wind tunnel, you know, and still sort of kept going with their zero side pod. You know, we saw at the first pre-season test they had a different side pod concept, but it was you know it wasn't size zero, but it was a size small, um, and then that sort of got developed to the size zero side pod. So they've they've been following the path that they've set themselves out, which was to minimize the side pod area, maximize the floor area, right from the beginning, I believe. But they haven't used the concept of of working the front of the floor very hard, i.e. Red Bull and Ferrari do. Um, working the front of the, the floor much harder so that the diffuser has less to do with the rest of the underfloor. So you're sort of, like the Red Bull and the Ferrari, they're separating the two bits of floor um, and making them work independently, I suppose you might call it, even though they all work together at the end of the day. But but Mercedes are still going for the underfloor downforce created by the diffuser, and they're really not working that front corner of the floor as hard as they should. And we saw that in Montreal when they cut that section out of the floor. I have no idea why they'd do that, um, but cut that out to sort of reveal the ends of the, the turning vanes underneath the floor to try and let the exit of them be bigger, stronger, whatever you like to call it. But that that's you know, you know that's that's something you see in a no disrespect to Formula Ford, but that's something you see in a Formula Ford paddock. Um, that was really to me was something that I have no idea why you do it. Um, because you can so easily throw away everything you've got and gain absolutely nothing, and that's a typical example of that. So as they keep saying we're we're experimenting, perhaps it's time to stop experimenting, especially with Lewis and you know, get both cars in the same sort of trim and try and get the best out of them from what they've got, as opposed to throwing, you know, one of the babies out with the bathwater, keeping the other one in reasonable condition, get both of them doing a decent job, um, and they'll probably be okay. They might still be fifth and sixth, or third best team, but they might be third best team, but competitive with it. So they need to do that for a while. Well, it'd be interesting to see how they get on at Silverstone because that would be the right approach for their fast circuit. The car works best in fast corners, relatively smooth surface, so should be quite good for them. But like you say, it might just be they're a stronger third rather than <laughs> a weaker third. So yeah, interesting to see how they how they get on and indeed how different next year's car is. Well, if you're listening to this podcast, you will recognise the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, we'd love for you to send us a question. And if you're lucky, we might just answer it on a future episode. You can either send us uh, an email question or you can record a voice note on your phone and send it to podcasts at the race.com, podcasts at the race.com. And don't forget to tell us who you are. Our question today is from John Washbush, and it's related to our main topic, but with a slightly different perspective. He says, the one thing I've not heard mentioned from anyone has to do with the tyres. Is it a foregone conclusion that Pirelli has nothing to do with this situation, referring to the bouncing, the porpoising? My own experience has shown me that one area that has a huge effect on handling the car was the sidewall height, width, and the number of plies of cord in the sidewall. Why has the FI not asked Pirelli to make a test tyre that has the same width, but with a slightly higher, taller sidewall, with a slightly softer or more pliable sidewall, just to see what would happen, if nothing else? Ultimately, the ride height for the new tyre would be easy to adjust, more easily than designing a new floor, side pods, adding rake, new front air, or whatever else someone else might think of. 
So what do you make of that, Gary? The the low-profile tyres contributing to this? Um, without a doubt. I'm sure the tyres have a big contribution to it. Um, the, the big thing is it's a one-make formula, tyre formula. Um, so at the end of the day, everybody's got the same tyre to, to cope with. The teams would have had all the tyre data that Pirelli could generate um, well before this season started. They ran this year's tyres on last year's cars in uh, in testing, um, in post-race testing last year. And they got they got the thumbs up, I think, from most people that they were, if if nothing, they were as good, they were the same, as good as the old tyre. They probably got thumbs up to say they were just a fraction better, felt that they were a little bit more durable, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. So I think Pirelli's homework on, do, on the tyre and the race team's homework on doing the tyre have, should have given them the baseline that the tyre was going to work with them. So I, I don't think that you can point the finger at Pirelli on this, in my opinion. The, the, the sidewall height, it's all for the right reasons. Um, whether, it's, whether it's worked or not is a different deal, but the sidewall height, reducing that, an attempt to get the tyre pressures down a bit, um, which hasn't really worked, but still trying to get them down a bit was, was the objective. But... I would say from pictures we see of the tyres going over curbs, the drivers can still hit, i.e. the Ferrari mainly. Um, the tyre is much more stable um, than the old tyre was. There's much more movement rim to, to tread relatively than there is in this year's tyre. So the tyre without doubt is a different animal, I suppose you might call it. And obviously the, the outside of the tyre has also got a little bit bigger than the diameter, the overall diameter of the tyre's got a little bit bigger than the than the old tyres were. So the vo- the sidewall height has not changed as dramatically as just going from a 13-inch rim to an 18-inch rim. The volume, because the wheels are all the same for everybody now, the volume inside the tyre is the same for everybody. The volume inside the wheel and the, and the, and the tyre is the same for everybody. So that, that change on pressure, on volume, due to tyre displacement due to heat or whatever will be the same for everybody. It's up to the team to manage it. So I am not saying that what you're, what, uh, that what you're saying is wrong. I, I'm, I'm saying that you have to point the finger in the direction of fixing it. And in my book right now, the, the teams, some teams are capable of, of doing a pretty good job um, and getting their performance of their car to a level that's, that's pretty good with the the porpoising or the bouncing at the level, which is also pretty good. No team will, will just make their car into a Cadillac. No team wants to do that. They all want to get the best performance out of it, and that compromises down to how the driver reacts to the, the feeling within the car, how, how stiff or how hard the car feels to drive. Um, we hear, you know, uh, oft, often Leclerc saying his car's fine, Carlos Sainz saying his car's too bumpy, they're both Ferraris. Maybe they're on a different setup to do that's what they need to sort of focus on then and just make sure the setup is correct as each driver. But at the end of the day, you make those those decisions based on what your driver needs. For years, we saw um, the Red Bull with Max Verstappen, you know, a very pointy car. I meant that uh, Pierre Gasly, Alex Albon, even Sergio Perez at the beginning struggled with a car because they couldn't drive what Max Verstappen wanted, which is a, a car that was really on its nose. Um, and some of the, the careers suffered because of it. So at the end of the day, you'll still, you know, you're, 
part of the team will follow you down that route of what is quick. Um, but it has to be built within the, what the driver will accept as well. And I think that the teams can make the cars better. Um, I think the the FIA regulations need to make sure that nobody is suffering long-term physical damage, which is what these regulations they're trying to put in is about. It's not about fixing the car today. It's about the, the long-term physical damage. But I don't think you can point the, the finger at, at Pirelli and say you need to make a different tyre. I think their tyre is the same for everybody. The tyre is okay. Um, and it's a, it's a one-make tyre formula. You just have to get on with it. Yeah, and ultimately we see some teams bouncing more than others. So, like you say, <laughs> it's possible. So you just have to have to make the best of it. Uh, well, thanks very much, as always, Gary, for your insights. We've been talking plenty about the porpoising and bouncing this year. I'm sure we'll come back to it again because it's been such a big talking point this year. But it's just fascinating to get the insight of someone who has been there and done that. So thanks again, Gary, and join us next week for more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.